0: Father, thank you so much for this day, for being here with us. I pray that you would teach us in this hour together as we, as we explore the wondrous dimensions of your existence and who you are. pray that we would know you, Father, in a personal way, that this would be just a meaningful experience for us as we try to understand the infinite God that we love and serve. In Christ's name, amen. Um, if you've been off the website, you'll see that we have our definitions page up. That will morph as we add more definitions that we you know all the words we use in the class are out there and uh, of course there's a questions page we got a question this week so if you have one feel free to email that and Dan will put it put an answer together for you so with that let's uh, go back and now we're last week we started looking at the attributes of God and we started out with the first attribute which is God is spirit and what we mean by God is spirit is that he has no physical physicality that he's not material um, he's not made of matter. And of course that would be true since God created all the matter, right? So if God created all the matter, that means God cannot be matter. Before time existed, before the universe existed, all you had was God. So God exists outside the material universe. He's not material. He has no spatial limitations. He's not localized to any one spot. Now, I was thinking about this last night. Um, when we talk about spirit, are we Spirit. As humans, are we spirit? Not 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 in the same sense that God is spirit, right? So if you were to die right now, you would still exist, all right? You exist in an immaterial. We're gonna talk all about that when we get to anthropology, the doctrine of man. But you will exist as a spirit like being, but you will not be spirit because you will not be omnipresent, right? You are not spirit like God is spirit. There is a material and an immaterial part of you. You are not all that we see. I am not all, you know, the real Alan is somewhere inside this thing of flesh here that you're looking at. The real me is not here. Um, The real me is an immaterial being that exists and, and, and God has given me a body to live in, but I am not, just because I have a spirit does not mean I have the same spirit like God has spirit. God is spatially, um, he he's not localized to any one place. He's omnipresent. We're going to talk about that later today. Not destructible. He's timeless and ageless. There's no time with God. God is just outside the boundaries of time. He doesn't, he's not subject to decay. He's invisible. He cannot be reduced to an image. How do you reduce the invisible God to an image? You can't. And any time you try to reduce the invisible God to an image, what have you you done? You've created something that's not God. You've created an image of God that is not reality. Because God is not a visible being. Although God cannot be seen, he's invisible, his evidence is all around us. We see the wind. We don't see the wind as in observing the molecules of air moving, but we see the effect of wind as it moves the trees and we feel the breeze. Even so, God is invisible. He can't be seen, but his existence is manifested in creation. We talked about the Shekinah glory of God. That's the blazing, brilliant light that God um, appears as when we see him. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, what did he see? He saw a blazing, brilliant light that no one can approach. That is the Shekinah glory of God that is That is is the evidence of God's presence in this universe. Not that that is where God is at, remember? But that is where God is seen. God is as much here as he is on the throne in heaven. He's omnipresent. But we don't see his presence here like we would see it in heaven. And if you want to know what the invisible God is like, what is the best way to do that? You look at the visible sun. Jesus Christ said, I am the representation of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God is like, look at me. Because I am the one who best represents God. And uh, Christ is the exact representation, Colossians 117, the icon, the stamp of the invisible God. So if you want to really know God, you want to really know what God is like, one way to do that is really find out what Jesus is like. Because Jesus and God are the same. The next... Uh, Attribute we're going to look at is the personality of God. God is a person. God has a personality. Alright? Now, what is, when you look at this thing, um, and and again we're going to talk about this when we get more to the doctrine of man. But when God created us, God created us in His image. Remember? Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image. And uh, a lot of people argue back and forth about, well, what does it mean that God created us in His image? Now, if you ask the Mormons, they say God created us to look like him. So they would say if God showed up, he would look much like any other human being. About 6'4", he has a hand with five fingers on it. He looks just like us. We couldn't tell him any, different, any difference from him than any other man, really. Um, and that's what it means to be in the image of God. It's talking about the physical form. Um, that's not really what Genesis is talking about. Genesis is not talking about the physical form. Genesis is talking about the personality. God created us for what purpose? To have a relationship with him. That's what makes us different than my dog... That's what makes me different than my dog, Stetson. Stetson's a wonderful dog. He's a great pooch, but I don't talk to him. Well, I do talk to him, but he doesn't talk back to me. Um, He doesn't have... I don't have a conversation with him. All right? So there's a limited relationship I can have with a dog or a cat or an animal, Um, you can see a personality, cats have personalities. I got two cats that are different as night and day. And again, I talk to them, but they don't talk back to me. But God created us with the ability to have a relationship. And what is required in order to have a relationship? You need to have a personality. And these are the things that God created us. When God created man, God created us with a unique capacity. And that capacity is to have a relationship with Him. That's what makes us different than animals. We can talk to God. We can relate to God. And this is probably best seen in the garden because what happened in the cool of the day every day? God came and walked with Adam and talked to him. What did they talk about? Did God need to be informed about anything? No, He's omniscient. He knows it all, right? So what is Adam and God talking about? Oh, probably small talk. Adam talks about some new flower he's seen in the garden and, or whatever. I mean, we don't know what they talk about. There was a relationship there. And that's one of the most astounding things to me when it comes to God. Here you have an infinite God who created everything. His intelligence is so far beyond ours as to almost be incomprehensible. And yet he wants a relationship with us. He wants a relationship. He wants to talk to us and he wants us to talk to him and relate to him. So when we talk about God have a personality, number one, he has a self-conscious. God knows I am, I am, I am, I am. And you are what you are. And one of the things that defines, um, or one of the things that's required in order to have a relationship, a personal relationship, is there needs to be a sense of identity. Right? I need to know that I am distinct from you in order to have a relationship with you. God has self-existence. And he says that in Exodus 3-4. Moses says, who do I say sent me? They're going to ask him, well, what God sent you here? And God says, well, tell them that I am sent you. And that word I am is one of the names of God, Jehovah, which means the self-existent one. God is self-existent. God's existence, we're going to talk about this later, it's a fancy word, aseity, And what that means is God's existence depends on nothing but God Himself. He is self-existent. We are not self-existent. Our existence depends on air, on our environment. It depends on God, right? Subtract God, we don't exist. So we are not self-existent. God is self-existent. In fact, God is the only self-existent being in the universe. But He has a self-consciousness. He is relational. Let us make man in our image after our likeness And then you see God having a relationship with Adam, talking to Adam in the cool of the day, walking with Adam, having a relationship with him. And this is what God wants from us, folks. He wants us to have a relationship with him. And one of the things that I've found in my years of Christian life is that when when you start seeing... When you you start seeing that your relationship with God is based on a relationship and not on a set of rules and and procedures and obedience and all that, you're going to take a leap forward in your spiritual life. Because now all of a sudden, the sins that you do are are not because you broke a rule, but because you violated a relationship. And when you value that relationship above everything else, all the rules and all of the things that you should and shouldn't do, take care of themselves because you love God you're going to want to do those things that please him God is a relational being God created us to relate to him which is, which is amazing to me God has intelligence that's one of the things required to have a relationship right intelligence now my dog has a certain level of intelligence he knows that if he doesn't do his business in the house he gets a treat that's a good thing. He knows about one o'clock, and he has a clock in him that's amazing, but at one o'clock he's ready for lunch. He knows that. Why? He's been conditioned for that. But he doesn't talk to me. I can't discuss world events with him. I can't discuss politics with him. He has a certain level of intelligence, but not to where I can form a relationship. And what's amazing is God has given us intelligence. So that we can not only form relationships with one another, but we can form relationships with God. God has granted us a level of intelligence and the ability to speak and to communicate. All of those are required for a relationship. God has a will, a personality. If one of the things, you know, you talk about strong willed personality and things like that. God has a will. God can make decisions, and God created us with a will. And for a relationship to be valid, there needs to be the possibility of a non-relationship, right? A relationship between two people requires a conscious decision on the part of both to have a relationship. Or there can be none. God has emotions. God feels. God created us with feelings. Throughout the Bible, you see again and again about God grieving you talk about God is love, God is wrathful, God shows compassion, God has mercy, God exhibits grace. All of those are emotions. And God has created us with those kind of emotions. Now, the difference between us and God is in God those emotions are perfected. God is perfect love. God is perfect wrath. He's perfect mercy. He has the perfections of those, but we can understand a little bit about God because we have emotions. If you want to think about emotions, are maybe a desire to have a relationship, right? Can two rocks relate to one another? No. There's no will. There's no ability to communicate. There's no desire for a relationship, and yet God has created us. And I think all of us realize what's, what, what makes life meaningful: stuff or people. People. That's what makes life meaningful. You can have all the stuff in the world if you have no people. I mean, you know, one of the movies, you know, there's movies that you watch once and never watch again. But one of those is, uh, what is it, Uh, Castaway, remember? Tom Hanks gets on the island. And what does he immediately make? Wilson. Got to have Wilson, right? Got to have something. I mean, you go bonkers all by yourself. So, you know, he takes a Wilson soccer ball and that becomes his imaginary companion. And one of the traumas in the movie is when he loses Wilson when he's out on the raft. Why? Because God has created all of us with an innate desire to have a relationship. And God created us specifically to have a relationship with him. And listen, you will find your fulfillment and your purpose in life when you find a relationship with God. Nothing else is going to make it. Everything else is noise to fill up the vacuum. We need to relate to God. That's why God has created us. And what makes heaven so wonderful is we will spend eternity in the presence of God getting to know Him. And having a relationship with Him. Can you think about that? Walking with God and talking with Him. That's, a, that's mind-boggling. And That's what God has created us for. And when you look at the personality of God, how, is God, how God has revealed Himself in the Old Testament... God has revealed himself in his personality, but in the names he gives himself. Now, one of the things that's really important for us to understand is in the Hebrew concept, the name was more than a label you stuck on a person. It described their character. It described what they were to be or what what uh, what they should be. One of the interesting things, I've done a lot of family history and I've tracked my family lines back some quite a ways. And Every once in a while in my family tree chops up, crops up names like uh, Patience. That was a common name back in the Puritan days. A woman would be called Patience. Um, Chastity was another woman's name. Uh, I, I remember, um, what is it? Uh, well, I can't remember the name right now. Um, one of them was, there's an innocent. I mean, descriptive names. And when you look at the Bible, the, the names that God uses in the Scripture, and even the names of people in the Bible, have a significance. Remember Abram? Abram was what? What did Abram mean? Father. That's a bad name, right? He didn't have any kids. So what did God change his name to? Abraham, father of many. How about, Remember Jacob? What was Jacob's name? What did it mean, Jacob? Anybody know? Deceiver Deceiver And God changed his name to Which is Prince Alright God changes the names And God's names mean something to him And the two main names that we see for God Is this name Elohim And Jehovah Jehovah is also called Yahweh Have you ever hear Yahweh It's the same word same, Same name Jehovah Yahweh and it's because of the four Hebrew letters that make up this name can be mo- pronounced multiple ways. And nobody knows how it's pronounced because the Jews would not pronounce it. They thought the name of God to be so holy and so righteous they didn't even want to mention his name. So we don't know how it was originally pronounced. We can guess at it. But Elohim and Jehovah are the two main names of God. Elohim refers to God's power and might in relation to His creation. When it talks about God in relationship to the created order, the Bible uses Elohim. El-Ohim, the strong one. El is the strong one. And I am at the end. Whenever you see an I am in the Hebrew, that's the plural. So what do you see a hint of here? Trinity. Trinity, right? Let us make man in our image. And some say, well, he's talking about him and the angels. No, he wouldn't talk about him and the angels. God is talking about himself. He is a plurality, a plurality in unity. We're going to spend a good amount of time talking about that. But this is used about 2,570 times in the Old Testament. Elohim, referring to God's power. Whenever you see Elohim, it's God's power. It's referring to his might, his strength, his power. And four of these exist, the four compound names. Remember El Shaddai, there's a song that used to be El Shaddai, El Shaddai. That means the God who provides. The God who provides. And it's interesting, the root word Shad here is a breast. And it refers to a woman who is feeding a child. God is the provider, he's the nurturer. He's the one who takes care of us. The God who provides it. That shows up in Genesis seventeen eleven or seventeen one. The God who is the provider. And what was the context of Genesis seventeen? Anybody remember? What's happening back then? What was Abraham told to do? And God provided a lamb. God is the provider. God is the one who provides. And th- th- what, what this is pointing to here is God is the provider of everything you need. Now, that's different than everything you want.
1: <laughs>
0: we live in a world where we, got, you know, we create this God. If you look at TV, Christian TV, they create a God who's supposedly the genie is supposed to give us everything we want. Look, that's not God. God does not exist to, to make you happy, to give you everything you want. God exists to provide your needs, which is different than your wants. And he is the provider of those needs. He is the only one who can provide them. We have El Elyon, God Almighty. That's referring to God's power, his sovereignty over his created order. Um, it might help to look some of these verses up here. I, you know, one of the things people say, well, we don't have to bring our Bible to the class. Well, yeah, you do. All
1: right.
0: Yeah, Genesis... Uh, 14, 17 through 11 after his return from the defeat of Keto Leomar that's a big one and the kings who were with him the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is king's valley and Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine he was priest of God Most High the Most High God Melchizedek interesting figure we don't know where he came from right? we don't know his lineage some have said he's Christ I don't, I don't think that makes any sense some said he was possibly Shem because Shem by the way you know Shem the son of Noah was alive in the time of Abraham Abraham could have gone down and talked to him um, some say it was Shem we don't know who this guy is in fact Hebrew says he doesn't have a genealogy we don't know where he came from or where he went but we do know this he was priest of what? the most high God the God who is Lord and Sovereign Overall, and what did Abraham do? Abraham gave him a tenth of the top of the heap, of the spoils of his victory over the kings. But Melchizedek is seen as the as the priest of the Most High God, El Roy, the God who sees, or Roi means to see. This is in the context of Hagar. Remember, what happened to Hagar? She got cast out, right? She was thrown out of the house. Um, Whose idea was it uh, for Hagar to have a child? Sarah's, right. But then she changed her mind when she saw that she had a son and and, and, uh, Sarah didn't. By the way, if you look at the... They they dug up, I think it was the Nuzi tablets, which are a bunch of ancient Hittite tablets. I think it's the Nuzi tablets. And uh, they found that there is a law in the Hittite culture on that day that if a woman was unable to bear a child as an heir, she could designate a surrogate woman to bear a child in her name to become heir because it was very important for a man to have an heir. And if his wife could not bear a child, she could choose someone to bear a child in her name and then that would become the heir. That was a perfectly legal thing to do. And what you find there is that Sarah and Abraham decided to give God a hand. Now let me tell you something. Whenever you decide to give God a hand... You mess it up. Every time. God does not need your assistance to fulfill His promises. It's sort of like, you know, if you were back in Michelangelo and he was painting the Sistine Chapel and he says, I'm going to take off for lunch. Why don't you finish the eye? Forget it. I can't draw. I can't draw stick figures. All right? Whenever you try to help God out, you mess things up. What happened is uh, Hagar was thrown out and of course she's out in the desert and it's a desert there and she leaves the child and goes off a ways and who shows up? Remember? The angel of the Lord. And she says you are the God who sees because you saw my affliction. God, This is referring to the fact that God sees everything. By the way, understand that nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing takes God. God is not shocked by anything that happens. God is not surprised by anything that happens. God sees all that's happening. And God saw this. And she says, You are the God who sees me. You have sight. And then El Olam, Olam referring to everlasting. This is the everlasting God. What does that mean? He is above and beyond creation, He's above and beyond time. He existed long before this creation ever came into existence and he will be here for eternity. He never ceases to be. He's the mighty God who is everlasting. Isaiah uses this. In fact, I would challenge you to go read the book of Isaiah chapter 40 to 48. If you read that once a week while we're going through the doctrine of God, you're going to get a handle on who God is. Because God again and again and again in those eight chapters talks about who he is. He talks about his being everlasting he talks about his omniscience he talks about his ability to predict the future he talks about his faithfulness to his people i'm the one who keeps promises i'm the one who's taking care of you he basically says i'm the one who created the universe and i've made a promise to you to take care of you so do you think i'm going to let you down the answer is of course no he will not so these are the compound names of god yes
2: i want to make a quick comment um the, the kind of the prefix L which was kind of used for God was, not, was used for more than just the one true God and here what we see is kind of these suffixes added on um, to kind of bring this descriptiveness um, so I just wanted to clarify that because sometimes people will see that somewhere else, refer to another God and they're kind of confused about that God's kind of using just the word for God I and mean, he's adding a suffix he's adding King or Shaddai or A yawn or something to give, you know, to explain who he is. And an important factor in that is this is a really good explanation of how we do theology. We study God as he reveals himself. This is a good way in the names to kind of illustrate that. We don't do it based on what we feel about him or what we think about him. We do it based on this is how he reveals himself. And it's just a prime example of how we're trying to do theology out of God's revelation of himself.
0: Yes. And God reveals himself in the descriptions of himself, a little component. Now, any one of these is not a full picture of God, right? God is more than just the God who provides. So any one of these is not enough, but God has given us enough of these to get a fully comprehensive understanding of who he is. And again, what are we going to do in eternity? We're going to spend eternity getting to know this infinite God. And that's going to be fun. That's going to be better than sitting around on a cloud playing a harp. Um, Another um, name is Jehovah, Yahweh. Um, Yahweh is often used. Jehovah refers to God, and this is interesting, it refers to God in his relationship to man. And what's interesting is that when you look at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 1, what name do you think God uses to refer to himself? Elohim in the beginning Elohim created and then in Genesis chapter 2 when it talks about his creation of man what name do you think he uses? Jehovah now this has led some really bright liberal scholars to think that there are two accounts of the creation and all kinds of weirdness that comes out of that look folks it's the same account of creation What what the author of Genesis is doing who is the Holy Spirit is trying to show us That God is not only the L God, the one who created everything, but he is the personal God, the one who has a relationship with his people. And that's what God has used when he talks about Jehovah. It's a relational name. It's a name that God... Some have said it's God's covenant name. The name that God uses when he's talking to man in a covenantal relationship. And this is the most common name that we see in the entire Old Testament. 6,800 times this name shows up. And the root again is the self-existent one, the I am. And the Hebrew letters are Y-H-W-H. That's why I get Yahweh. But the Y there in many of those languages, like even in, um, in Latin, if you took Latin, sometimes the Y sound and the J sound, we've turned it into the J sound. But it's a Y sound, Eustace, And we call it justice. Um, it often referred to, and if you ever see this word, the Tetragrammaton. That's a fancy word. Tetra is what? Four, four letters. And often it's used to just be this name. It's called the Tetragrammaton in theological writings, and refers to the Hebrew letters that make up His name. Can be pronounced Yahweh or Jahweh, Jehovah or Yahweh, or it's the name of God. It's really the name that God really uses mostly. Um, is only used of the one true God. There's no L business here. When you look at the Old Testament, as Dan said, there are times when L shows up to refer to gods other than God. But this is not the case. This is the used only in relationship to God. And it comes from the Hebrew word, Hayat, to be. God is the to be. Remember, He's not the becoming. God's not sorting creation out as He goes along, working through problems. Nothing takes God by surprise. He's not the uh, he's not changing he's not mutable in the case of his character changing he's set and that means he is to he is the self-existent one and again this name is highly revered they don't even pronounce it out loud if you're taking Hebrew from a from a um, like a a Jewish rabbi who's teaching you they freak out if you even mention this name my uh, professor college said he was learning Hebrew from one of from I guess a rabbi and he pronounced the name he said the he guy almost ran up one wall and down the other. You just don't pronounce this name. It's so highly revered. And it's interesting whenever they would copy the scripture they would when they come upon the name of God, they would stop, they would go get they would go take a bath, change their clothes, get a new quill pen, and write the name. That's how highly they revered it. Now, that's a far cry from people today that just throw God's name around like He's their pal. I mean, they really revered this name. All right, It was a very holy thing to them.
2: Um, a couple things on names. Some, sometimes just to bring this whole clarity of the use of the two different names, um, the Elohim and all the different L's, it's almost like, um, well, they're, while they are names, they're also descriptive terms. So it's, it's kind of like if I was describing myself and I'd be like, I'm the guy who's married to Christie, or I'm the guy who teaches a frequency around the guy who plays the drums, but then Jehovah is like, you know, the name. So it would be like me saying, well, i you know? There's that, there's that distinctiveness, um, which also comes in as we talked about, you know, how there, a lot of liberal scholars want to kind of say, well, because this name is used here, this name is used here. It's just a compilation of a lot of different authors trying to say different things about different gods. Um, wanted to make the comment that one of the reasons they come to those conclusions, it's a stretch to to get to that, but it's because they come to the scripture with the presupposition that it's not inspired of God, and they come to it with this presupposition that, all right, this is obviously wrong, so we've got to find a way to explain all the way that it's wrong. Um, And I I really encourage you, there are good reasons to have a a solid, what I would call a, a... an orthodox presupposition when we approach Scripture, but I would encourage you. A lot of times, these kind of explanations come out of a, of, of a different presupposition to approach the text with. And I, I encourage you go ahead and well, find a reason for a healthy presupposition. Make sure that it's grounded in some type of you know reason. But um, it's okay to just, I believe, to approach Scripture and say, all right, what what is this thing? You know, what is God telling me? Not all right, well. We're going to throw out what we think is wrong here, what we think is wrong here. We approach it with, I believe, to be an orthodox mm-hmm. belief system, and, and that's not saying just ignore everything, but but deal with it, that possibility. That okay, if God is all powerful, then doesn't He control
1: the the passing down of His word?
2: Um, and when you when you come to it with that presupposition, I think it gives some healthy reasoning to not worry about
0: this. Yeah, I only mention those because often when you I mean, if you watch the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, you know, they're talking about the lost books of the Bible and they're talking about all this weirdness out there. Their presupposition is the Bible is not true. That's the presupposition. That's where they start. Well, the way you need to start is the Bible is true. That's where you start. And you find out what it says. Yes? You know, just to
1: support what you're going to say, literary, criticism, literary criticism is the approach that's made by such out rather than to rule in. And therefore, as a religion major, uh, myself, there is no reference to miracles. There is no reference to the fact that after Jesus was killed, he came back. There is no reference to anything that would give the slightest hint of divinity to Jesus. Um, Obviously, if you go to a, a Christian seminary, you get the wonderfulness that I didn't get. Thankfully, I was already raised in a way to know that these people are secular. They are trying to rule out divinity, rule out therefore miracles associated with divinity, etc. So, uh, did I not get anything good from it? No, that's not true. A lot of what you're teaching here is very familiar, training back memories, but. Um, Overall, be aware if your child goes off to be a religion major in a secular uh, institution, they're going to be defeated of things that have to do
0: with anything relating to divinity. Yes. Um, The the presupposition is there's no such thing as supernaturalism, therefore it can't be (coughs) supernatural because there's no such thing as supernaturalism. And uh, that's the way they start out. um, And that's the way they approach the scripture. And... uh, it's sad to say many people are shipwrecked over that. And we're going to talk about that when we get to bibliology. When we get to the doctrine of the Bible part of this, these, these, this course um, of theology, you're going to re- we're going to really show and, and talk about the authenticity and the truthfulness and the veracity of Scripture. And that will answer a lot of those questions. Yeah, Dan.
2: I don't want to spend too much time on this point, but this is kind of a key thing that we should be you know, dealing with presuppositions and things like that. Um, we see this in a, in a lot of theologians, like we, I think specifically Rudolf Bultmann. And he makes this comment in dealing with miracles, as you said. He um, he says, well, we have a scientific worldview, and he says that you know, well, Scripture was written in a mythological worldview, and so a priori, which I'll talk about what that word means in a second. He just he just rules out by principle that oh well, it just can't happen, so we have to reinterpret it. And what what part of what we're trying to do in this class is deal with Deal with it with the opening of the possibility that, hey, if God exists, he is powerful over the space-time universe, and he can do what he wants to do with it. Um, and so I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of point that out. We, we all approach everything with a set of presuppositions, and I just want to encourage that, that uh, we should be willing to consider our own presuppositions, obviously. Um, but also recognize that some of the things that are, that people will say, well, obviously, Scripture can't be this, or obviously, well, because they're coming at it, ruling it out a priori, which means kind of like five principles, without dealing with the facts. And what we are hoping to do is be able to deal with this, well, we got to have presuppositions. You have to start somewhere. We want to give a reason for our presuppositions, and we want to approach it as God means for us to approach Scripture, um, so that we can, we can consider mm-hmm. it. So just encouraging on us on that. I used, I used to get really freaked out when, when a smart person would say, well, obviously it can't be this. And, and any kind that word is used, it usually means, well, it's not so obvious. You just want me to think that because it's based on your presupposition.
0: And, and one of the reasons we bring this up again is because of the inroads of cable TV with your, with your discovery channel and history channel. And, and when you go back and like uh, try to find out who the real Jesus is, they always get the wrong one. And the reason they get the wrong one is because their presupposition is the Bible's not true. It can't be trusted. Um, I'm going to tell you right now that, that I teach that book as though it is true. Because I believe it is. I mean, we can debate on, you know, what does it mean here or there. But whether it's true or not, that's not something we're going to discuss. Um, I'm, I, we have reasons for believing it's true. I mean, it's not just a leap. You know, I'll pick that over the Koran or over something else. No, it's, it's, it's based on reasonable things. But my approach is that that is the Word of God. God has revealed Himself to me in that and I want to know what He says about Himself. And this nonsense about it not being the Word of God or it sort of being evolved or all this other kind of weirdness. And just, that's my priori. I disregard that. In other words, I approach the Bible, it's true unless you prove to me it's false. The way the liberals... Approach it, it's false until you prove to me it's true. Alright? All right. And that's the difference. That's the difference. Yeah.
3: What's
2: the Dan? He was comparing mythological compared to scientific. Uh, scientific, oh, scientific.
0: Yeah, see, you know, the, the scientist says, you know, how, don't talk to me about God parting the waters. There's got to be a scientific explanation for that, you know.
2: Which, and on, on that issue, yeah. though, the, the scientific worldview that Rudolf Boltmann, which we'll get to him way later, but that he operates out of, um, is actually even being called into question even now. Since, I mean, for a time, oh, I don't want to take too long on this, but Newtonian physics had this idea that we could just logically deduce everything <laughs> and be really, really sure, you know, um, or, or really, as some of that came out of Rene Descartes, and so I, I mean, we could be sure of things. And now a lot of the things we would say, well, this never happens because we've scientifically tested this, this, and this. Well, now since we've studied subatomic physics and quantum physics, things aren't obeying the laws that we thought we were so sort of sure of. And so now we're kind of calling into question, like, well, maybe we weren't, we weren't so sure of it. Now. So even the scientific worldview, well, we still have. I mean, it's still the most prominent thing. Now, even that, at the time, level was being kind of called into question, like, well, yeah, we, we still have a scientific methodology, obviously, and that's healthy, that's good. But we don't necessarily say, oh, well, this never happens, because then we find out somewhere, well, it does, you yeah. know? Like, um, so it's interesting. That's, um, a side note on that, a guy named Frank Tipler, can't agree with him on everything, but um, he's a quantum physicist who has actually gone through all the major points of um, her Christianity that even that deal with miracles. He's gone through and, and says that quantum physics actually supports them. Um, this idea that if there is a being who is in control of the space time universe, uh, he can do anything, including uh, virgin birth and walking on water. And he actually explained how virgin birth actually happened in terms Now, it's kind of a fluke crazy thing, but he says that, like, well, you know, if, if there was a being that was in control of the space time universe, well, then no good deal for him. He actually came to Christ, he says, as a result of quantum physics. Um, I think he has to stretch his quantum physics a little bit, but I'm
0: cool with yeah. Yeah. The bottom line, folks, is that what's going to happen, you, if you believe the word of God, you're going to, someone said, uh, how do I put it? They put it, they, they made an illustration like this. They said, you know, the scientists will go out there, they'll scratch and claw, spend their lives theorizing, climbing over the last mountain, the last um, scientific mountain, only to find all the theologians standing there talking to God. All right. So the whole point here is that you don't need. I'm a scientist. I I have a major in physics. That was my major in college. Um, So I'm a scientist at heart. But you know what? God is in control of all things. And this virgin birthday, that's easy. That's child's play. God revealed himself and God revealed himself in nature. He revealed himself in miracles. He's revealing himself in what he is saying he is like. Um, getting back to the, you know, and again by the way we're going to find ourselves on these rabbit trails in the class and that's okay because you're here to learn alright they're good ones they're good rabbit trails there's no problem with that Jehovah Jireh the Lord who provides Jehovah Nisi the Lord my banner uh, my flag Jehovah Shalom the Lord is our peace that's a good one Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. This is interesting. This is one of the major names used by God in Isaiah. If you read through Isaiah, again and again, God refers, I'm the Lord of hosts. And when you read what that means there, God is saying, I'm the Lord, I'm the captain of the armies of God. All the angelic hosts are underneath my command, which talks about his sovereignty and his ability to intercede on the behalf of his people. And if you remember in Isaiah, when the Assyrians showed up, at the gates of Jerusalem, and Hezekiah was all worried about what's going to happen, how many angels did God send to kill one hundred and eighty six thousand? one what do you think he's going to do with ten thousand? God is sovereign, God is in charge. Jehovah this is going Macshkimm I think I got to learn how to got to learn a little bit of my Hebrew here. The Lord who sanctifies purifies God. Purifies his people Jehovah Rohi this is one of the famous the Lord is my shepherd Rohi that's in Psalm 23 Jehovah Sid the Lord our righteousness Jehovah Shema the Lord who is present God is present everywhere he's with us now Jehovah Rapha the Lord is our healer the one who heals us and see all of these all of these little names Healer The one who's present Righteousness Shepherd Sanctifier Lord of hosts He's my peace My banner He's the one who provides All of these are telling me Something about what God is like He takes care of me He's in charge of the universe He's my righteousness he, He's my comfort He's my shepherd He He leads me beside still waters He takes care of me And someone said That probably The best example Of what a christian is like is a sheep the dumbest animal on the face of the planet when it comes to it and shepherds will tell you this the sheep some in fact someone said that god created sheep as an object lesson to show what we are they are a dumb animal they are the dumbest animal on the planet and you know some said uh, you know if it's lost it walks around in circles till so it falls over dead doesn't know how to get. It says it's the only animal in the world that can be totally lost within a few miles of home and have no way to get back. So when it talks about God who comes and seeks the lost sheep, folks, you know, we're wandering around out there in the desert. And if God doesn't take the initiative and come find us, we're going to walk around in circles until we fall over dead.
3: if you think in terms of spiritually. Yes. Because we know we are intelligent. We can, we can do all these things that require... It's the self. spiritual dimension. It's a picture of our spiritual mm-hmm.
0: situation.
3: Yes. I had um, the opportunity to send staff here chief, by Philip Yansky, a presentation he gave. It was a conference on the church and the disabled. And the ultimate question he was trying to address was, what is the role of the church in ministry to the disabled? And he ended up with sort of a twist to that. And he said, he told about this friend of his who had calls, palsy, was very limited in her ability to do And he said, when I see her, when I see someone with some type of disability, it tells me that that is what I want Spiritually. Mm-hmm. And just as a person with a severe handicap, they, the, the cerebral quality is spastic in their physical actions. We are spastic spiritually. Right. So I think anytime we have the, this imagery that we see in Scripture where the Lord is trying to show us what we are and what He wants to do for us. We have to think in spiritual terms, not just in our normal everyday. Right. Well, I know that I can do this, or I know and it. And was, it was interesting when you talked about the sheep going in circles, and never being able to find his way home. That's exactly what mankind does, mm-hmm. spiritually, when he doesn't come to grips with the reality of who God is. Yep,
0: yeah. you'll walk around in a circle and fall over dead. They can't. A, a, a sheep will not go near fast moving water, even though it will die of thirst before it will go against a babbling brook and drink. The shepherd has to make a calm spot for it to drink. There's a, there's a book out there, um, I forget who wrote it, Talking the, the, given the spiritual comparison between a sheep and a human. What is it?
1: Philip
0: Keller. Keller wrote it. Yes, it's an interesting book. But uh, God is our shepherd. He takes care of us. He's there to provide for us, and He is our provision, our only provision, and He is the provision of all of our spiritual needs, as long as as well as our physical needs. Let's look at God's infinity. There's a lot of here, a lot of um, things here on God's infinity. When we talk about infinity, what do we mean by that? If something is infinite, it has no boundaries, right? There's no limit to it, okay? God is limitless and unlimitable, all right? Now, does God have limits? Yes, he does. God has limits, but what are those limits? They're self-imposed. They're defined by His nature, by what He is. But no, there's no external force limiting God. There's no external being who limits God. God is the only one who limits what He is. God says, I am alone and there's none beside me and I will do what I will do. And who is it that's going to question what I do? Yes. He can't sin. He can't sin. He can't lie, right? Um, God has uh, promised, in, in my case, God has promised to me eternal life. He can't go back on that. He's never going to go back on that. God is limited only by the limits that he places on himself. But God is not limited by any external agency. There's nothing out there that's saying, God, you can't do this. You're not allowed to do this or you're not allowed to do that. And a lot of times what we want to do in our own minds is we like to place limits on God. We like a God that we can control. And God is saying, no one controls me. I am the one who has sovereignty. And we're going to spend a whole week on the sovereignty of God. That's a biggie. God alone is sovereign. But he is limitless And unlimitable. And uh, why don't we look at uh, these passages here? Jeremiah 23, 24. Um, You should bring your Bibles because we are going to look at them. (laughs) Yeah, why don't somebody, I'll read Jeremiah. Somebody else look up 1 Kings there. Um, 23, 24. I got in my multifocals here. All right. Um, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Declares the Lord. He fills it. Heaven and earth. What does that encompass? All of creation. God fills all of creation. Nothing is hidden from Him. He's unlimited. Um, somebody read First Kings. Sammy.
1: And Father stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel, and spread forth his means toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee, in heaven above, or on earth beneath, who keepeth countenance and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. who has kept with thy servant David, my Father, that thou promised him that thou sayest also with thy mouth, and hast fulfilled it with thy hand, as it is this day. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father, that thou promised him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their ways. That they walk before Him, as thou hast walked before them. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heaven cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I built.
0: What is Solomon saying there? Solomon is saying, God, you are the infinite creator. You fill the heavens and the earth. How in the world can I be so bold as to think that you can dwell in a little itty bitty temple? God exists outside of that. And not only that, but what is Solomon talking about? He's talking about the limits that God placed upon himself. What limits did he place upon himself? His promises. What did God promise David? I will give you a king on your throne forever. That was God's promise. God limited himself in the sense that he made a promise. But nobody made God make that promise. That's the difference. God is limitless and unlimitable. He exists again outside the boundaries of space and time. He exists aside and apart from creation. You can't fit him into creation because he's beyond it.
1: God, because indeed what you said is absolutely correct. However, the limits in fulfilling the promises are impacted by our obedience or lack thereof, because of the Abraham mm-hmm. example, for one. Yeah. Yes.
0: And the answer to that that observation is yes and no. There are some promises God makes that are going to be fulfilled whether I do it or not.
1: Now,
0: a point it does yes. There are some that God does. There's some promises that God makes we're going to talk about this um, later on in the course there's some promises God makes that that do have conditions on it but for example when God showed Abraham God said Abraham if you believe in me I'll make you a great nation no he didn't right he said I'm going to make you a great nation alright God is the one who if you want to think about God is the one who makes the conditions of a relationship with him All alright And implied in this is there's a sense you're never going to figure this God out. I mean, you'll spend your entire life on this world trying to understand this infinite God. You're never going to fully figure Him out. But you know what? You can make a dent in it. You can can take that path towards knowing God. Omnipresence. It's a great word. I remember growing up as a little kid listening. God is omnipresent and omnipotent and omniscient. All right, those omnis. We've tossed a couple other ones in there on our omni list. We'll get to those next week. But one of the attributes that God has is he has omnipresence, also maybe called immensity. We we saw that in these two passages that we read. God fills the heavens and the earth. There's no place in the universe you can go to get away from God, which sort of makes Jonah's little trip sort of... A waste, isn't it? I'll just go to Tarsus on the other side of the known world and get away from God. And God says, you know what? I'm on the boat. I'm under the water. I'm with the fish. You're not going to get away from me. All right. Implied in omniscience. And, and one of the things you'll see as we look at the attributes of God, there's some of these attributes that, that connect with other ones. One implies another attribute, so, to, so sort of. And omnipresent emphasizes... Imminence, what does imminence mean? I think mean, that's spelled wrong. It should be I-M-M. I spelled that wrong. I gotta fix the slide. It means that He is present with us now. God is not the thing that's way out there somewhere in the distant galaxy and disconnected. God is here. God is imminent right now with me. Everything. Monism. What is it monism. Monism. M O N I S M. All is God, God is all. That's the theol- theological basis of Hinduism, Buddhism, um, the New Age. All is God, God is all. That's called Monism. That's. That
2: pantheism,
0: yeah. All of that's connected to that. There's another one called dualism, which says there's two opposite forces, eternal forces, good and evil. Um, we're going to talk about both of those, so don't worry about it. We'll get to those. Um, this is not monism. We're not talking monism here, all right. The, the, this table is not God, all right. This table is not God, but God is here. God is right here with us now in this room, all right. He's imminent. He, he is involved personally in His creation he's also immense what does that mean he's it's outside the boundaries of space and time and he's transcendent what does that mean he's outside the box he's, he's, he's transcendent yet imminent. and, and some of the heresies and Dan's got a good class coming up on this in a few weeks where he talks about the imminence and transcendence of God there's a lot of weird thinking that comes out if you shoot down one path and forget the other If you make God imminent but not transcendent, you get into heresy. If you make God totally transcendent and yet not imminent, you wind up in heresy. Um, Islam believes that God is transcendent, but they don't believe he's imminent. He's he's so far above us that he he doesn't relate to us. So, both of these concepts are true. What omnipresence means is God is everywhere, at the same time, in equal measure. Alright I'm not going to have somebody read all of Psalm 139 But a couple of verses is Whither shall I go from thy spirit Whither shall I flee from thy presence If I ascend into heaven you're there If I descend into hell You're there If I take my place on the uttermost part of the earth Behold you're still there You can't get away from God Now this is a scary thing Because what does this mean It means that God sees everything you do you know, behind the closed door, nobody's looking. God's there, looking over your shoulder, seeing what you're doing. You can't get away from God. You can't flee from His presence. You can't get away from Him. Um, God is everywhere at the same time in equal measure. And again, we explain, well, why is it that we see the Shekinah blazing glory in heaven and not here? And that's because that is where God's presence breaks into our universe. But that doesn't mean He is not here. We just see His presence. There, We don't see his presence here. And in fact, on the Mount of Transfiguration, what did Christ do to a small extent? He pulled back that veil a little bit. And what did the disciples, John, Peter, and James, see? They saw part of his blazing glory. All right. Although God is equally everywhere, and this is what we're talking about, there's a sense in which his presence is not manifestly equal everywhere. It's not that he is not here. It's that we just don't sense him as being here. He is still here. I use the illustration of TV, you know, a TV signal. Is it here in this room? Sure it is. Well, why don't we see television? Well, we're not picking it up. <laughs> but it's here. It's everywhere. But we're not picking it up. All right. And when you see his glory on the throne, you see it in a blazing light. You see His presence there. You don't see a being there. You see a blazing, brilliant light of God's presence. And that's what the writers in the Old Testament talked about. They saw the glory of God. Talked about the blazing light. Yes?
1: Another thing that secular theology does is they, they will go along with omnipotence. They will go along with, um, with omniscience. But I got shut down in class when I spoke up and said that he also omnipresent. Um, present, and the professor said, "No, he's not." <laughs> <laughs> and another thing I wanted to say, totally separate, but on or all the omniscient, fact is that science has recently um, some aspect, some research in science has recently said that the Earth is held up. By sound
2: waves.
0: Mm. There be, there was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about God's omnipotence um, next week. I
2: wanted to give you yeah. a quick um, the question about um, the whole God in a rock, God in everything. Um, whereas omnipresence would say God is present everywhere. Uh, the monism, pantheism, panentheism would essentially have this idea that God's being is wrapped up in all of those things. That somehow he is in part, that uh, his being is somehow connected to the rock. Not just that he's present there, but that it's, in most cases, they would say that if, if, if the rock was God, or that, but at the very least, there would be this idea that his, that his being is somehow wrapped up in it. We're saying that it is completely separate from him, but he, he can be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and just so that we're clear on our, our definitions, we have eminence of the idea that, that you know God is imminent, is he is present everywhere. Then there is this idea of um, transcendence, that he's completely other, than, that he's distinct and separate, um, just so that people are clear on those definitions.
0: Yep. Alright, well next week we're going to pick up here with talking about God's omnipotence, talking about his omniscience, Omnitemporal, there's a new one. And omni sapience. God is all wise. God doesn't make any mistakes. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, be sure if you, to please fill out the attendance sheet if you're here. And those who want to take the class for moody credit, see me after class. And let's close in. Yeah? Yes. I'm sorry.
2: One more thing that I wanted to mention. One more thing I wanted to mention. This is a um, um, comment Alan made earlier that I wanted to support but also explain. Uh, He talked about how we approach Scripture with kind of the a priori assumption that it is inspired by God. We do. That doesn't mean that we... That we just decided that one day, there there there's a a structure of reason and rationality behind that, and that's not to say that we're blindly like whatever, anyhow, we're going to ignore everything else. It's just saying that we've come to this conclusion. We're approaching scripture with that assumption. It doesn't mean that we won't hear a an argument against it and defend it, or it doesn't mean that we don't have a reasoning for it. It just means that we've, we've come to that presupposition, there's a reasoning for it, and now we're, we've, we've kind of gone past that where now we're dealing with the Scripture itself with that presupposition. All right. Sorry.
0: sorry. No problem. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the day and for being here with us. You're, you're everywhere. But I pray, Father, that uh, as we ponder your character, your personality, your spirituality, your omnipresence, that it would make a difference in our lives, that we would... See you for who you really are, not for what we've created you out to be. And I thank you, Father, you've revealed yourself in your word. And I pray that we would be diligent students to find out what you have said about yourself and to take it for what it says. And we thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.